Good morning. You know, there's an English author called C.S. Lewis, and he rightly says that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is either the greatest hoax of all history or the greatest fact. And the one thing it can't be is half-truth. So it's either it is the greatest hoax, if it is so, then you and I, we are wasting our time this morning sitting here. But if it's the greatest fact, then it's the one of the greatest events in the history of mankind. But what it can't be, it is half-truth. I want to begin this morning by reading to you the Matthew account of uh, the resurrection, which I think in some way Mary Magdalene in the clip that we watch has, uh, has given us a clearer picture as well. So let me just begin by reading to you this text. In Matthew 28, they say, After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for the angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him, they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women, women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clapped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go into Galilee. There they will See me. I don't know whether you realize that this account I just read to you, twice in this account, and also found in other parts of the gospel, we see the command, do not be afraid. Once from the angel and once from Jesus. Twice in this account, we see the word, do not be afraid. Basil King was a Canadian author. He wrote a book many years ago called The Conquest of Fear. And he said this. He said, we are not sick all the time. We are not sinning all the time. But most people are afraid of something or somebody all the time. We are not sick all the time. We are not sinning all the time. But most people are afraid of something or somebody 
all the time. You know, fear is a real thing. Fear of future, fear of failure, uh, fear of responsibility. Many people hate responsibility. They run away from responsibility, which of course is a sign of maturity. Uh, fear of failure, fear of unknown future, fear of failure, fear of responsibility, fear of old age, fear of insecurity. Ian used to tell me there's no incentive to grow old. Is that right? <laughs> Not everybody will agree that. <laughs> fear of what others say or think or will do to us. And ultimately, I think there is this great sense of the fear of death that many people are confronted with. There's a story about this man who went to see his, his GP and said, I've got trouble. Every time I get into bed, I think there's somebody underneath. And when I get under the bed, I think there's somebody on top of it. So top under, top under, I'm going crazy. And the GP said, well, I can refer you to see a psychiatrist. So he went to see a psychiatrist and he told the psychiatrist the same thing. The psychiatrist said, well, why don't you come and see me every week for the next one year? And I'll cure your fears. And maybe the person said, how much does it cost per visit? Say about $200. So oh, let me think about it. I'll come back to you. And then six months later, he bumped into this psychiatrist in a grocery store. And he said, hey, how come you didn't come to see me? He said, oh, it's a bit expensive, you know. But, you know what? A bartender cure my fear. See, how does a bartender cure your fear? See, I only paid $10, I went to the bar and have a cup of have a beer. And he cured my fear. Say how? He told me to cut the legs off the bed. <laughs> That's it. He said, from then on, no more fear. I wish every kind of fear can be so easily resolved and uh, by a bartender. But the reality is, it is not. Fear is a real thing that crippled many, many people. And so this morning, what I want to do with the remaining time that I have, I want to give you three suggestions, three wisdom that I believe that comes up from the resurrection account. The very first one is that we no longer need to fear the future. The greatest threat we face in life is the threat of death. Life does not go on forever. With all our nurture, our friendships, our wealth and our knowledge, our celebration, our pleasures that we all enjoy while on earth, there come those crossroads moments in our lives when no food can sustain life. No celebration can be endless and no pleasure can be perfect. The body ages and weakens and it is not within the capacity of food to ultimately restore the strength or lost youth. It moves inexorably 
towards a diminishing return. There is death. Every one of us must face our mortality. But the question then is, hope ceases if there is no hope beyond the grave. But the resurrection of Jesus takes the teeth out of death. Easter shows us that there is, no, there is life beyond the grave. Death is no longer a giant. It is merely changing of address. And Jesus' return from the grave allows us to face death with new confidence. We understand now that for the child of God, death is a transition point. Nothing more. And this morning, I stand to proclaim that hope, the hope of this resurrection. There is death, yes, but life is in Jesus Christ and the hope of our resurrection. Jesus, in one of the I am statements that he said in John Gospel, there are seven of them. One of them, Jesus said to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Or in another version, it says, Jesus said to her, I am the one who brings people back to life. Why? Because I am life itself. Those who believe in me will live even if they die. Susan Vogel, who is a dean and professor of a, a theology college in Kansas City, and her son died in a car accident. And she actually wrote a book about that. She thanks, and this is what she said. She said, the world is never again as it was before. Anyone you love has died. Never so innocent, never so fixed, never so gentle, never so pliant to your will. Everything changed, she says. Like most of us, she never paid much attention to the phrase in the creed that sometimes a Christian recite, and that is, I believe in the resurrection of the body. She said, suddenly when my son died, I begin to think so much of the phrase when I recite the creed. And she writes to her old theology professor, it has to do with everlasting life of my son, the resurrection of his body to which I first gave birth, she said. It is not now an esoteric exercise in creedal affirmation. It is my fervent mother hope that my baby, my firstborn child, is not lost forever. Is not lost to me forever. Is not lost. And when you really think about it, without resurrection, what hope is there for such kind of mother? What is it that gives a widow courage as she stands beside a fresh grave? What is the ultimate hope of the crippled, the amputees, the abused, the burned victim in Auschwitz? What is the hope for them? How can the parents of brain damage or physically handicapped children keep from living their entire lives totally and completely depressed? Why would anyone who is blind or deaf or paralyzed be encouraged when they think of the life beyond? How can we see past the martyrdom of some helpless hostage 
or devoted missionaries? Where do the thoughts of a young couple go when they finally recover from the grief of losing their baby? And when a family receives the tragic news that a little daughter was found dead or their dad was killed in the plane crash or a son overdosed on drugs, what single truth becomes the whole focus? What is the final answer to pain, mourning, senility, insanity, terminal diseases, sudden calamities and fatal accidents? And I think one thing, and that is the hope of bodily resurrection, which is part of what Christian worldviews conceive, conceive of, consists of. Francis Bridger said this when he reflected on the Holocaust of six million Jews and died and all that. He said, if the Holocaust raises massive problems for the theists, which is those who believe in God, it raises even greater ones for the atheists who has no appeal to transcendent values, but is left with what Albert Camus called the hopeless encounter between human questioning and the silence of the universe. And he went on to say, what has atheism to say to the burning children? That the Holocaust was just one of those things? That it was merely an unfortunate fact of history? That it was a meaningless event in a meaningless cosmos? None of this is acceptable. And he went on boldly to proclaim this. He said, atheism is the most cruel hypothesis of all. For, his, for it says that in the end, injustice cannot be righted. Suffering cannot be redeemed. Evil triumphs after all. There is nothing more the atheist can say to the victims of Auschwitz, nor can he say more to anyone who wrestle with the problem of evil and suffering. So my friend, the wisdom of resurrection is that we need not fear our future because there is resurrection. The bodily resurrection means there is life beyond this one. A place where things will make sense, where God will rule, where evil will be vanquished. And that is why Paul, in defending of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says this, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? He said, it must go together. If there is a resurrection of Christ, then there is a resurrection follow after. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, 
we are of all people most to be pitied. If there's no resurrection, that is. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, that is Jesus, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So that is our greatest hope. And we need not fear about the future because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when Christ has already risen from the dead, we will then follow in the future. Have you heard of the story about keep the fork? Some of us, we may have heard the story about keep the fork. There was a woman who had been diagnosed with cancer and had been given three months to live. And her doctor told her to make preparations. So she contacted everyone and her pastor and to ask him to come over to discuss about certain aspects of her final wishes. She told him which song she wanted sung in the service, what scriptures she would like to be read on that day, and what she wanted to be wearing. And so the woman also told her pastor that she wanted to be buried with her favorite Bible. Everything was in order and the pastor was preparing to leave when a woman suddenly remembered something very important to her. He said, Pastor, there's one more thing I want you to do. And the pastor said, what's that? He said, this is very important. I want on my left hand holding my Bible and my right hand holding a fork. The pastor stood stunned. Never heard this kind of request before. Doesn't know quite what to say. And the woman said, does this surprise you, pastor? He said, yes. And the woman explained, he said, you know, in all my years of attending church social functions where food was involved, and let's be honest, food is an important part of any church event, spiritual or otherwise, she said, my favorite part was when whoever was clearing away the dishes of the main course would lean over and shout to everyone, you can keep your fork. He said, it was my favorite part because I knew the best is yet to come. She said, when, when they told me to keep my fork, I knew that something great was going to be given to me. And so, I just want people to see me there in the casket with a fork in my hand. And I want them to wander around, wondering what's with the fork. Torment them for a little while, Pastor, as they come for the viewing. Everybody mumbling, questioning, what's the fork? And then I want you in your homily, mention to them that that something better is coming. And therefore, she is keeping her fork. So maybe 
the next time you and I reach down for our fork, let it remind you ever so gently that the best is yet to come. And that is our greatest hope as believers. The first wisdom in the resurrection is we no longer need to fear the future. Second wisdom, I think, comes up from the wisdom of resurrection is we no longer need to worry about the past. You know, many of us live with regrets. Many of us have made decisions before in our lives that we look back and we regret. Have you watched the movie Shawshank Redemption? It's been showing on TV very frequently nowadays. Morgan Freeman, when he first came out, was not such a great review in a sense. But as he went on, more and more, I, I, I tell you the truth, I must have watched that movie 10 times. There's something about that movie, you know. It's slow, but it's, it's good. And Morgan Freeman plays a prisoner by the name of Red. And there's a scene where Red is meeting with the parole board. He's been in jail for 40 years. And the board asks him, do you feel that you've been rehabilitated? After 40 years. As if Freeman would say no. And Freeman and Morgan Freeman says this, rehabilitated? Now let me see. And the board tries to explain to Red what rehabilitated means. But Red interrupted and said, I know what you think it means. But to me, it's just a word you politicians use so that you can sign your papers and stamp your forms. What you really want to know is, am I sorry for what I did? Yes, not a day goes by when I don't feel regret. For the families I hurt, for the people I let down, I wish I could go back and talk to that foolish boy I used to be. Talk some sense into him. Tell him how things really are. But I can't. And all that's left is this broken down old man. And I have to live with what I've done for the rest of my life. You know, my friend, I don't announce to you on Resurrection Sunday. Jesus' death on the cross secures the forgiveness of sin. When Jesus came back from the dead, he proved that the sacrifice of his life was acceptable to God. His resurrection shows that the debt for sin has been paid. God's wrath has been satisfied. Why need such a great sacrificial act? Because biblical sin is not just sin against man. It is sin against God. It is not just sinful behavior. It is sinful nature. It is not just sinful activity, but sinful thoughts. Not just sins of violation, but it is the sins of omission, falling short 
of the likeness to God. And therefore, all of us stand condemned. Luke 24, Jesus said, He told them, This is what is written, The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And that is precisely the significance of baptism. You die to your old self. You've been immersed. You are buried. And you are raised again as a new being. You are dead. Your old self is gone. And Paul said, therefore, the old self is gone. The new has come. In Acts chapter 10, it says the same thing. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in the Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. And then down to verse 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You know, I've just read to you the Matthew account. There is Mark account in chapter 16. And I want to highlight to you one thing that none of the other gospel account highlighted. In Mark chapter 16, when, when uh, the angels appear in verse 7, when the angel appeared to the woman and said, Go, tell his disciples and Peter. And Peter. No other account record this. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told. Why did the angel mention Peter specifically? I think there wouldn't be any doubt in anyone's mind that God intended to fully restore this fallen disciple. He has denied Jesus three times. And in read John chapter 20, 21, Jesus restored him back by asking him three times, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Three denial, three affirmation. And then after that, Jesus says, Repeat again, Peter, come and follow me. Again, returning back to his first calling, Peter, follow me. Now that he has fallen, he denied Jesus three times. Jesus restored him. And then Jesus said, come follow me. And I'm quite sure without any doubt in my mind that Peter believed that he was completely washed up as a follower of Christ. And I think some of Jesus' other disciples believed the same thing about Peter. And I think God wanted to make it very clear to them that He wants to make it clear to you and I now that His forgiveness is available to you and I. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So my friend, the second wisdom that comes out of this resurrection is we no longer need to fear 
and worry about our past because Jesus has given us forgiveness of sin and gives us a fresh start always when we come to him in repentance. Many years ago, has this uh, preacher called S.M. Lockridge. And famously, we have all heard before this phrase called, it's Friday, but Sunday is coming. S.M. Lockridge. S.M. stands for Cedric Meshach. And he once asked his mother, why only name me the first two men? Shadrach, Meshach. How about Abednego? The three guys that was in the book of Daniel. He said, no, no, no. This is from his sermon, all right? He said this. He said, my mom says Shadrach, Meshach is enough because I'm afraid that people might think that you're a bad Negro, me Negro. Therefore, no Abednego because you may be a bad Negro. Sorry, this is what he said, not what I said, all right? This is from his sermon. So Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge, he is famous, this sermon called, It's Friday, but Sunday is coming. You can listen to it on YouTube, it's powerful. And the idea of the message is, it's Friday, Jesus has died, the devil is laughing, because he thinks he has won. Jesus lies, in, lies cold in the grave, but Sunday is coming. So he said, it's Friday, Jesus is in the grave, and all hope seems to be lost, but Sunday is coming. It's Friday and it looks like the dream has ended, but Sunday is coming. It's Friday and you may be tempted to give up and quit, but Sunday is coming. Easter morning teaches us that no matter what happens on Friday, Sunday is coming and nothing is beyond God's power. The resurrection makes the word hopeless obsolete. It makes the word impossible meaningless. It makes the word despair insignificant. And that is why Paul can say in Philippians 4, 13, that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And it's not in the sense that I can do all things in the sense that I can fly an airplane uh, without learning how to fly, with Christ giving me strength. It's not that kind of uh, way of interpreting that verse. In the context of Philippians 4, it's about whatever situation, whatever circumstances, whatever struggles or trials or challenges that I may be facing, I can go through it through Christ who gives me strength. And literally, translation means, I am strong for all things in the one who constantly infuses strength into me. So that is the third point. We can face the present with confidence. Not just only facing our future with confidence, knowing that there is a resurrection. Not just only having confidence of the past, letting go of the past because of the forgiveness of sin. But we can't face the present with confidence now. Because of the resurrection of Christ, no situation is beyond God's power. The resurrection proves that no event in the world is beyond God's power or out of control. And that is why Paul can confidently say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The resurrection of Christ tells us we can face the present with confidence. It means there is a possibility of a new beginning. 
there is a possibly there's a reason for joyful living. So need not fear the future, need not fear the past, and live our lives confidently where we are, knowing that Christ will sustain us with His strength, no matter what challenges or trials we may be encountering. There's a writer called John Chester. Uh, he says that this story about the invaders arrived in one of the villages, and the leader of the village reported to the commander, say, all the monks hearing of your approach, they fled to the mountains. So this conqueror coming into this part, entering to this monastery, and they, someone reported to him, say, all the monks ran away because they knew that you were coming. The commander smiled with a broad, cold smile, for he was proud of having a reputation of being a very fearsome person. But then the leader added, all that is but want. The commander became enriched. He marched to, into the monastery and kicked in the gate. There in the courtyard stood the one remaining monastic monk. The commander charged at the figure. Do you know who I am? The commander demanded. I am he who can run you through with a sword without batting an eyelash. And the monks quietly sat there, fixed the commander with a serene and patient look and said, And do you know who I am? I am the one who can let you run through with a sword without batting an eyelash. I have no fear. I can allow you to do that. And that is what we ought to be in this resurrection account. That we can live in the present confidence for whatever challenges, whatever trials, whatever thing that is ahead of us. That's the confidence we have in the present. Because of the resurrection of Christ, no situation is beyond God's power. Pope John Paul II, let me close with this. He died at the age of 85 years old in 2005. And if you remember Pope John Paul II, he became a Pope in 1978. He was uh, as a Pope for about 28 years. And you remember towards the end of his life, he barely could able to function and always appear on a TV, very frail, and all that. And, and there was an article written about him towards the end of his life. And the article says this. He said, it makes no sense, this is an American's writing, he said, it makes no sense that for Americans, with our Puritan-bred devotion to performance review and productivity, the inability to fully do our jobs, would be reason enough for most of us to quit. But John Paul II instead keeps on living each day painfully, awkwardly doing what he knows himself caught to do. 
testifying every painful day to the truth that human life is precious, that even weak and vulnerable and diminishing human life has value. And that is what we call the sanctity of life, not the utilitarian type of outlook of life that is so prevailing in our society. And that is why euthanasia is so prevailing, isn't it? Because you can no longer function, you're no longer good to this society anymore. Let's get rid of it. But the sanctity of life that is so prevailing in Catholic theology, they refuse to bow. And that is what his famous phrase, phrase when he was in Australia in 1986, it was during the middle of the Cold War, five years after an assassination bullet almost took his life. He said, we do not pretend that life is all beautiful. We are aware of darkness and sin, of poverty and pain, but we know that Jesus had conquered sin and raised through and passed through his own pain to the glory of the resurrection. And then he said this. This is a famous phrase. Sorry, I forgot about all this. He said this. He said, Do not abandon yourself to despair. Why? Because we are Easter people. And hallelujah is our song. We do not abandon yourself to despair. We are Easter people. And hallelujah is our song. And it's the same as what Paul says. My dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is never in vain. We are Easter people. Hallelujah is our song. So may you know, my friend, on this Resurrection Sunday, may you have this great confidence that there is life after death. May you have great confidence that God forgives your past. He forgives your sin. May you have great confidence in living today. Whatever challenges that you may face that is ahead of you. We are Easter people. And hallelujah is our song. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the resurrection account that every year we come and sing. We sing of the song, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. Because He Lives, all fears are gone. All fears are gone. Because I know He holds the future and life is worth living because He lives. Thank you, Lord, that the wisdom of resurrection tells us that we need not no longer fear the future. We no longer worry about our past. We can face the present with confidence. I pray for each one of us here present this morning. Whatever challenges that they may be facing, I pray in the name of Jesus, you will calm their fear. They will encounter Jesus. They will surrender their life to Jesus Christ and acknowledge Him as their Lord and Savior and claim upon these beautiful promises that He gives to us that we can all give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord because we know that our labor in the Lord is never in vain. As we now close this time of 
worship singing this beautiful hymn, He Lives. Help us again, remind, remind us again and again and again that you live, you live, and therefore we shall live.